You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is from Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there's a scene from Herman Melville's famous book about the whale, Moby Dick, where there's this almost predominantly Christian crew on board, and they're giving one specific sailor a hard time for not being a Christian. And they've got this sense of superiority that they're expressing. And so Ishmael, the the narrator, he, he says this statement. Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. God help, have mercy on us all. And what he's alluding to here is essentially the question that Paul opens up with here. What then? What then? Do we somehow believe that we are better because of our religious tradition that we've inherited, that that somehow gives us an advantage in life, an advantage with God, that this makes us immune from sin and, and, and puts us in right standing with God? Not at all. Presbyterians and pagans or for the first century Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending today. What we're going to do is we're going to focus on four points in Paul's final argument for the universality of sin. In other words, the problem of sin that we all have. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at sin's diagnosis, sin's dimensions, sin's dominion, and sin's defense. Let's look first at sin's diagnosis. Now, earlier in the scriptures in the New Testament, in the gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is interacting with this group of religious leaders where he's, you know, these, these re- the religious leaders were very concerned about the defilement of the world and the infection of sinfulness outside of themselves. It was about staying clean, washing, cleanliness, keeping the gross and the icky and the evil of the world away from them. Keep that away. 
And in Mark 7, it says this, And he, Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then it goes on to say, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, pride, uh, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So think about this. In a season of COVID, we have rightfully taken a ton of precautions to keep the defilement out there from getting in here. And no one is faulting you for that. This is responsible, the responsible thing to do. But my question is this, have we been aware of the defilement within? We go into a public setting and immediately we are aware of the dangers from without. But do we wake up every single day with the awareness of what Jesus has just said here? The danger within. The danger within. So back here in Romans chapter 3, we have this picture here, and it's as if God, the great physician, has called us into his office, and he grabs that, you know, like oversized uh, popsicle stick thing, and he says, okay, open up, say ah. We all say ah. And when he looks in, what he sees in every single one of us is death. These are God's words here. Look at me in verse 13. Their throat, speaking of all people, are an open grave. The disease of sin is eating away from the inside out. Now, this may sound harsh. And this may seem like unnecessarily critical. But remember, this is a diagnosis. And when you go to the doctor, what you need most is not a nice diagnosis, as much as we'd like that. And when you go to the doctor, what you need most is not a friendly or a cordial diagnosis. What you need most is an honest diagnosis. And healing in our lives, which I think that all of us desire, healing in our lives can only come, and I mean only come, after we're willing to receive the honest diagnosis of our condition that God's word gives to us. Now, I've shared this story quite a few times, but it highlights kind of what I'm getting at here as best as I possibly can. When I was younger, right out of high school, I apprenticed for a general contractor. And I had, you know, this, these brand new tools, and I was kind of bold and negligent, and I was drilling into a, a round piece of sheet metal, and it bound on the drill, and it caught my finger, and it got through skin and, and bone, and, and bent it this just horrendous way. And I sat there for minutes thinking through every single scenario that I could imagine that would allow my finger to heal without having to go to the doctor. And I'm starting to get real creative about all the ways that I'm gonna be able to fix this. I didn't have insurance at the time. I didn't have the means to pay for going to the doctor. And so what I ended up doing was I simply tried to straighten it. It, it didn't work so, so great. Uh, tried to straighten it and wrap it as tight as possible and just hope it got better. The next day I'm at work and it's just bleeding through the gauze. It doesn't matter what I'm doing, it just keeps coming through the gauze and I'm kind of nursing it but trying to hide it and my boss finally sees what's going on and he's like, okay, you're, you're stupid and you just need to go to the doctor, I'll pay for it, whatever, go, get it fixed. So I go to the doctor, I show up and I'm like, can you stitch this thing 
up. And the doctor told me, no, it's not that simple now because you have a deeper problem. And because you waited, and specifically, here it is, because you covered it up, it's probably already infected. And to now just simply to sew it back up and sew it together would trap in the infection, and you'd probably lose the whole finger. And so I began this, this grueling process of treating the infection beneath the surface before treating the surface wound. What Romans will uncover about us and in us is our desire to overlook the issue of sin. Our human desire that we all share to cover it, to ignore it, to downplay it, to seek these quick fixes. God, just, just sew it up. Just make a quick fix here. And what Romans is doing here is it's, it's taking us deeper than we're comfortable going. I mean, it is uncomfortable to keep talking about sins. Like, all right, Paul, I get the point, and deeper in and deeper in we go. And it's to show us that this isn't simply a surface-level issue that can be bandaged. Home remedies won't do. And the diagnosis is that there is something that brews underneath the surface of every single one of us that can't simply be covered up and it can't be ignored. And the more that we try to apply surface-level treatments, whether it's through our religious performance, or I'm, I'm just going to read my Bible a little bit more, I'm just going to pray a little bit more, I'm just going to give a little bit more, I'm just going to go to church a little bit more, the worse the condition becomes. See, that's the irony. The more trapped the infection of sin becomes, because when religion is used as a bandage, it only makes the problem worse. When sin, or rather, religion is used as a cover-up for sin, it just traps the infection in and makes it worse. Now, you can get away, and people do all the time, you can get away with stitching it up and, you know, overlooking the issue for just uh, temporarily. And think, well, if I just act a little nicer, or if I just do a little bit more, or if I, if I, if I just try to change these, these certain areas in my life, then I'll be okay. But it will begin to destroy from the inside. And like an infection, it will bring decay and breakdown. And Paul tells us here, it's not just an open grave. We're given the imagery of the venom of vipers. It's poisonous. If left to brew within and not being treated and healed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only does it destroy us, Here's the scary thing. It begins to destroy the people around us. It becomes toxic. It becomes poisonous in our relationships. We, we don't just become a threat to ourselves. We become a threat to others around us. Which leads us, secondly, to sin's dimensions. Now, Paul not only gives us the diagnosis of sin, but he tells us about its dimensions. And what he does is he strings together a bunch of Old Testament portions of Scripture. He's quoting from the Psalms, he's quoting from the Proverbs, he's quoting from Ecclesiastes, and he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And it's all in order to show the ways that sin takes shape in our life and how it affects every portion of our existence. Every portion of our existence is touched by this. And he describes these dimensions. He begins by saying, talking about our, our legal standing with God. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one just finds themselves in good standing with God, naturally or by their own achievements. 
doesn't matter how polished your life appears. You can't achieve that. We're told that it affects our minds. He says no one understands. Now, this is not talking about intelligence. Uh, he's not saying Christians are more intelligent. They're not smarter than, than non-believers. What he's talking about is the ability to discern God's truth, to be able to tell the difference between what God says is right and, and wrong. And, and sin impacts our ability to filter uh, when life comes at us and to, and to really process suffering and challenge and how God is at, is at work in all of it. We're told sin affects our desires. We seek after a lot of things in our life. We seek after pleasure. We seek after power. We seek after positions and wealth and fame and freedom and political opportunities. But as Paul tells us here, and as the scriptures elsewhere tell us, no one seeks for God. We seek a lot of things. No one seeks for God. And here's the thing. Sin is so distorting, so manipulative, that even when we seek for God, it's motivated by selfishness. It's motivated by pride. It's motivated by some desire to achieve or to earn some sort of position. It's not seeking God for God. It's seeking God for self. God is a means to our own end instead of being our all-satisfying Savior. It affects the direction of our lives. He says, all have turned aside, going down paths of ruin. It it affects our impact in this world. It affects our overall purpose in life. He says that they have become worthless. In other, in other words, we're rendered ineffective in life. Our speech, our emotions, our relationships, and ultimately our worship of God. No one fears God. Every dimension. He's coming at every angle here and showing us that every dimension of our existence has been affected. It's all been touched. Nothing off limits. And not only affected, but it's become dominated by sin. Look in the in verse 9. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So that leads us to our third point, sin's dominion. Now, we tend to think of sins as infractions. Well, it's the violations. It's, you know, when God's word says to do something and we don't do it, or when it says don't do something, we do it anyways. It's doing naughty things and that sort of thing. And this is definitely true. Sins are violations of God's law, but the problem of sin cannot be simply behavior issues. The issue is way bigger than doing naughty things that we shouldn't do. And when we reduce sin down to actions or behaviors— then what ends up happening is we simply try to change our actions. We just try to change our behavior. And guess what? We're actually pretty good at doing that temporarily. And what ends up happening is when we simply just change our actions because sin is just doing naughty things, we stop looking to God for mercy. We stop looking to God for grace. We stop looking to God for rescue. Why do I need to be rescued if I just need a little self-help? And when we stop looking to God for rescue, when we do pray for him, it's just, help me, give me that extra nudge so I can change my behavior. Give me that little extra juice so I can do the things that I think I need to do. But we're told something very specific here in verse 9. It's not saying both Jews and Gentiles sin, although that's true. It's saying in verse 9, Jews and Gentiles are under sin. And if you haven't 
gathered this thus far, what this is, is slavery language. Under sin. Before sin is actions or behaviors or even thoughts. Sin is a tyrant force. It's, it's one that seeks to enslave you and to place you under its dominion. Now, I don't know where you are on the spectrum of faith. I don't know if you agree with anything that I'm saying right now, but I have never met a single person that wants to be dominated by something that wants to destroy them. No one, regardless of faith, wants to be under something's control that is seeking to bring them down. And the Bible tells us this is exactly what sin is doing. Later on in Romans, we're told that sin is reigning in verse uh, in chapter 5. In chapter 6, Paul tells us that sin is enslaving. It's demanding your obedience, and it's trying to master you, whether you know it or not. And it's simply too powerful to break free from on our own. But, because we're self-deceived, and because I think that we have overconfidence in ourselves and underestimate sin, we think that we have the ability to conquer it on our own. But Paul's pointing out something here. Not only do you find yourself under sin, but then he says, oh my gosh, a number of you also find yourself under the law, verse 19. And this is not good news because now you're in bondage to both sin and God's law. You thought knowing and, and having God's word, now for the first century, he's talking about the Mosaic law, but you thought knowing your Bible and trying your best to live according to it, that this was somehow going to deliver you from sin's slavery? That your religious performance was powerful enough to break you free from all of this? But you're not only incapable of conquering your sin on your own, you're also incapable of living the kind of life that God's law requires. The law brings the knowledge of God's holiness. The law brings the knowledge of our sin but absolutely zero power to do anything about it. The law does not save, it condemns. Now, God directs us by his law, but ultimately he delivers us by his gospel. The law of God shows us our need. But it's only the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified in our place that supplies the need and gives us the power to live for God. One approach, it all rests on us. How's that working out for you? But through the gospel, it all rests on him. And as Paul would describe it here, the law is a burden and it's intended to be very burdensome. In fact, it's intended to press you down so low that it brings you to your knees in humility, driving you towards God's grace and mercy so that you can recognize, I can't carry this. And God says, yes, but I can. Let's get real here for a second. Why do we find that sometimes, oftentimes, it's professing Christians that are the most burdened, miserable, joyless, tortured kinds of people. Was that too real? Why is it that honestly there are 
oftentimes where I'm like, I would much rather hang out with my non-believing neighbors and friends than that group. The group that professes Christ. The group that has the joy of the Lord. Why is that? See, what happens, and we're all susceptible here, what happens is trying to use our religious performance to break ourselves free and put us in right standing with God doubles down on the burden. And we become dominated by both sin and guilt. And honestly, we become more miserable than before we knew that sin was bad. We become more miserable after believing. However, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. So the Christian life isn't just carefree, no worries, no troubles, no burdens. However, it is a life that has gotten out from underneath the bondage of sin and now has come under the life-giving reign of Jesus Christ. Do we sin? Do we sin, church? Yeah, unfortunately we do. But sin no longer has a hold on us. And this is a really important distinction that we grasp. The presence of sin, it's still there. But the power of sin has been broken. The power of sin has been disarmed. Sin no longer has a claim over our lives. Sin no longer has a claim over our emotions. For the child of God, sin no, no longer has a claim over our relationships or our, or our future. It's been broken. It no longer dominates us. It no longer is able to say, that is mine, because God said, no, they're mine. Christianity means that God has taken the burden of perfection that he requires upon himself in order to replace it with the light burden of freedom so that we can, so that we can live lives of obedience. But now, by the power of the cross, and through the strength that he provides to us by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's look finally at sin's defense. Sin's defense. Now, I am reminded about a very epic, dramatic story of Lance Armstrong, the world-famous cycling uh, cyclist. And after beating uh, cancer, he lived this life of, like, overcoming. I mean, for goodness sakes, he started a nonprofit. I remember as a teenager, like everyone had the yellow live strong wristband around their wrist. And it was just this, this, this inspiring, compelling mission of rising above devastation like cancer. But over the years, there were skeptics. Little tiny pieces of evidence that he was using these illegal performance enhancing, enhancing drugs. And, and they kept surfacing, but he would he would deny it. And so for 14 years, he went on record year after year denying it. And I actually found a chronicle of all of these denials. It's very interesting. 
July 1999, he said, quote, I have been on my deathbed. I'm not stupid. I can emphatically say I'm not on drugs. January 2001, the simple truth is that we outwork everyone. When you perform at a high level in a race, you get questions about doping. In other words, we're good out there. Of course they're going to think we're doping. January 2004, I've never had a single positive doping test, and I do not take performance-enhancing drugs. July 2004, we're sick and tired of these allegations, and we're going to do everything we can do to fight them because they're absolutely untrue. November 2005, how many times do I have to say it? I've never taken drugs. July 2010, as long as I live, I will deny it. January, you getting the point here? January 2011, if, you, if you're trying to hide something, you couldn't keep getting away with it for 10 years. No one's that clever. May 2011, 20 plus year career, 500 drug tests worldwide, worldwide, in and out of competition, never failed a test. I rest my case. But in 2012, after a formal investigation was conducted, multiple sources confirmed his doping. The evidence was mounted against him, and then all of a sudden, he got really quiet. Real quiet. Years and years of denial and denial and deflecting and excuses, and yet he was finally left suspicious. And so, in 2013, what he did was he went on Oprah, because where else would you go at this point? And he says before the watching world, I've got to own this. I'm guilty. I've got to own it. Now, for the last couple weeks, uh, and really the last couple chapters, Paul has been mounting his evidence against humanity. That is what he's been doing in chapter 1, 2, and here in 3. And it's all in order to prove this very simple idea that Jews and Gentiles, religious or irreligious, are all guilty. And he keeps calling in the witnesses. He just, in, in every, at every turn, he's calling different witnesses to the stand. He appeals to the evidence of society. He just says, look around how broken things are. And then next he calls up his own, you know, your own experience. Look at your own life. Look at your own broken existence. And then he appeals to the evidence of your conscience. You know, when you're quiet and all by yourself, those thoughts and convictions that begin to arise. And then finally, he brings out here in this passage, the big guns. The scripture, God's final authority, as it's written. And, and this section ends with a picture here of a defendant standing there after hearing all these really, really uncomfortable things about themselves. All the, the evidence has been laid out. And now they're given their opportunity to speak. Here is your like in the court of law, here is your opportunity to legitimately defend yourself. What say you? What is your defense? And, and there they stand, or more specifically, there we stand, speechless. Every mouth stopped, we're told. No excuses, no, yeah, but, yeah, but the thing is, silence. In order to praise God for the gospel, you have to first be silenced by it. We do a lot of talking, not a lot of listening. As Judge Judy once said, God gave you two ears 
and one mouth for a reason. We're so quick to defend ourselves. We're so quick to speak. But this is our moment to be silent. Now, as you know, this Sunday is the first Sunday of Lent. And Lent is a season of speechlessness. And that, that doesn't mean that you, you're quiet, completely, utterly silent. This is still a season filled with praying and confessing and singing and sharing testimonies of struggle and prevail. But, but speechless here means that we stop defending ourselves. We just simply stop defending ourselves. Could you imagine a life, and I want you to imagine this with me, a life completely free from having to defend yourself ever again. Not ever having to make excuses for the way that you've wronged God and others. Not having to deflect or point the attention back on someone who seems worse. Could you imagine a life where you don't have to play the victim anymore, where you can stop downplaying or denying your brokenness? Well, Lent is intended to remind us that this is exactly the kind of life that's been offered to those who repent and trust in Jesus and believe with their hearts and confess with their mouths that he, Jesus, was condemned in our place on the cross. And that on the third day, he rose for our justification. And once we stop trying to justify our existence, and once we stop trying to talk our way out of everything, it's then and only then that we're ready to receive the grace and mercy that comes to us freely through Jesus Christ. You see, the good news here is that we're not left defenseless. That's not what I'm saying, that you're just out there vulnerable and defenseless. For so long, you've felt that you've got to advocate for yourself because if you don't defend you, no one else will. That's not true. That, friend, is a lie. Because in the gospel, we're told that Jesus will stand in our defense. We don't have to defend ourselves because Jesus is our advocate. In 1 John, we're told, my, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When we are honest about our diagnosis, we are then given the, the hope that Jesus brings healing. And when we're honest about the widespread dimensions of our sin, we then have the hope that Jesus floods his grace into every area of our lives. And when we're honest about the bondage that we experience in life, we have the hope that Jesus brings true and utter freedom. And when we're honest about our own guilt and we stop trying to defend ourselves, we have the hope that Jesus stands in our defense. And this is how we reflect God's new humanity to a broken world around us. How different would the world feel if all believers in one foul swoop just let go of their defensiveness? What would the world feel like? What would the world look like? How different would the world sound if we were quiet when everyone else was quick to make excuses? And how much 
more joyful and free would the world be if we stopped taking ourselves so serious because we had begun to take Jesus and his claims serious. I have to imagine, and I hope that you do too, that the world would be a very, very different place. God help us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for...